You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. time that we don't want to waste on music biz 101 and more on brave new radio i'm your professor david kirk philp along with dr esteban emeritus professor yes Yes, he's he's a professor a doctor an emeritus and we also have on board with us today dave has dave do you go by dave or david i answer to both david is my given name but i answer to anything a lot of people just like me haskell in business that's what most people know me by my last name we have the man and the myth, David Haskell, who is the president of BizDev Business Development at Gateway Studios, a full-service, fully integrated production company behind the production for tours like Fish, Garth Brooks, Aerosmith, Brandy Carlisle Smaths, uh, Slash, Trey Anastasio Band, Phoebe Bridgers, and many more. And we will be right back with Dave, Id. But before that, Dr. Esteban, should we give thanks? I hope so. Let us do so then and give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like David Matthews. See, Dave, how I went, I called him David instead of David. He was trying to stick with that theme. Trez Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine... Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals all over the world and on other planets manage their investments, plan after the retirement when you're thinking of building a bridge to your financial future and not a Phoebe bridge, but a just a regular old bridge. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oi off for savings. Which is something we consistently do every day. And we should also mention one uh, other thing, uh, Managing Your Band 7th Edition remains out, waiting for you to read it. And uh, the William Patterson University Music Business Department for the sixth time has been named one of the best music business programs on the planet. All good stuff. So Dr. Esteban, as yes. you absorb our awesomeness as a program, why don't you begin the third degree and learn all you can sure. about David Haskell? Sure. So I read, David, that you did get a uh a bug to get into this business in high school. Why don't we pick I, it up there? Well, it's uh, it started like most of us as a young kid, being a, a lover of all types of recorded music. You know, I can remember in the first grade bringing uh, Alice Cooper's Love It to Death album to show and tell, literally, and opening it up with the big eyes on it. And 
teacher probably right. said it's time for you to go now. But, you know, as, as things progressed, obviously the, the love for music was there. And I, you know, thought myself as a, as a great guitar player and figured out later in life that uh, there's probably more money in the odds that's far greater being on the other side of the uh, input, if you will, uh, which took me down the road of uh, exploring, you know, production and, and, and getting into that, um, you know, all through junior high and, you know, high school, you know, had all the, the musical toys that we did and then ended up trading them in for, you know, sound, sound equipment and figured out I could make more money with that than I could a guitar. So that's, that's kind of where the bug started and, you know, worked worked in record stores as a as a young kid selling Marine uh, stereo equipment at Cherry Point. My father was uh, in the in the Marine Corps there, so I was born there and stayed there. And that kind of was a nice progression of getting more into the technical side. And you know, after that, kind of uh, saw one of our our bands that uh, a regional band called Nantucket that was based out of North Carolina. This is in the late 1970s, and they came and played our high school, and I saw the show and hung out after and I said this is it and uh, literally have not turned back since 1978 and have been very very blessed to be associated with some great and fun people in this industry that have mentored and really helped me out along the way. So how did you get the uh, the idea that you wanted really to do production and live production? Well because I found out that I was really a guitar player <laughs> and I couldn't sing either and uh, the affinity for you know wanting to engineer live music, record music, and, and, you know, push my career into live sound, which is kind mm -hmm. of where it started. And uh, it kept doing that for almost 40 years and then recently tailed into the, this new adventure that I've got. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was the, uh, were you attached to a venue or were you attached to a band besides Nantucket that... Um... Uh, it was uh, it was always it's it's actually there's quite a there's quite a, a lineage there. It's it started off you know as myself working with the bands. Nantucket was one of the first, and they had some very very strong regional success in the years. And we were probably best known. We were one of the world's greatest opening acts. I mean, they opened for Kiss, they opened for the Stones, they opened for ACDC, Foreigner, Boston, all of the big headliners in that era. Right. And to be able to go out and work with them and have the opportunity to be around and work with some of those great acts at the time at such a young age, not only helped me sharpen the skills as an engineer, but also as a, just as a human being and, and managing and, you know, working through this business as you learn. But mm -hmm. it's all about mentoring. And I was uh, very, very fortunate to work with some of the greatest people in this industry and early in my career. So you were doing, uh, were you doing the sound when they were doing the opening acts? That is correct. Yeah, front of house. I did front of house engineering was my uh, that was my forte for many many years until I progressed into, you know, venue venue management and artist management, right. and producing and yada 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 like everybody. We've, so we've when been. you were so when we were the engineer for front house, you were then uh, I guess using different equipment uh, every time there was a headliner that you opened for because you used their sound system. Yeah, that's correct. Usually how it went in those days, and it does, you know, still true today, whenever you're the support act, you usually have your own console. Well, you know, back in the late 70s and early 80s, you took whatever you had, and sometimes you were the, the uh, headlining acts were nice enough to give you your 12 channels and say, make it work. Right. But, um, since, you know, usually you have your own console, and you're having the, the opportunity to work on different flavors and different manufacturers of PA systems, which is invaluable. Mm -hmm. Right. So did you ever get any um, 
I don't know, any type of flack or something because um, some of the headliners didn't want you to use some of their equipment or anything like that. I'm thinking back when I was I was on the road and through the 70s too and opened up for many, many acts. And at times we did get that kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah, from time to time you, you get that, but you know, it's it's all just like anything in this business, you know, as you well know, Steven, it's you know, you it's all in how you manage the expectations and tell the guys, you know, hey, I'm very happy to be here and you know, work within the confines that are given. But it was never really a confrontational type of thing. Sometimes, you know, oh God, here comes the opening act. Here's your see you later, here's your twelve channels. But most of the time yeah. if you you let the people know that you were willing to learn as I was at a young age like that, nine times out of 10 people are going to help you. And and a lot of the great ones did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So from there, you did that for about 40 years, you said? I'm still, yeah, still doing it from time to time. Uh, you know, you, you branch off into other endeavors as you do when you, when you're touring, you know, right. Uh, I've moved into, you know, a production management role. I've done tour management. I've done artist management, uh, during that been able to produce a few uh projects and a, and a few records for some people uh and then got into a venue management um uh, dale morris i worked with mr morris out of nashville for many many years and he was probably one of my greatest mentors and uh took me into uh, the alabama theater in myrtle beach we worked worked with the group alabama for many many years and right they decided to branch off into building live live music performance theaters uh, I was brought in to, the, to help uh, oversee the, the construction, the production with other people, and then stayed on there for a number of years as the general manager of the Alabama Theater. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually got to learn a whole lot there, too, not only dealing with the production show that we had in there, but dealing with, uh, you know, one national act every week. It was, a, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. And how, well, how many seats was that? Uh, it was 1993, which is the same year that it was opened, which was even more interesting. Really? See how that worked out. Ah, so that's uh, that was quite a big theater. That's not. Um, yeah, it was gorgeous. It was that's... built from the ground up, and it was you know largely designed for the group Alabama to have a place to play when they wished ah. in their town where they grew up at. And uh, we had an Opryland production show in there as well that ran. Hell, I think we ran 300 and. 2330 something days a year right yeah, it was non-stop yeah that, yeah i was just going to ask you how did you get the name how did they get the name yep I mean, yeah. weeks. yep <laughs> so you sort of slid into then venue management that's correct yeah i started then, as the production manager of the facility and uh after six months you know did a good enough job and the uh, the ownership group at the time that had it said, hey, "Would you be interested in taking on the general manager position?" and and I did, and uh, stayed in that position for the better part of eight years. So it was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A very very good experience. And then to where? Uh, from there, I came back to Nashville uh, again because I've been in and out of Nashville for the last 25, 30 years, kind of in and out as we all do working in this industry. Um, had the the uh, the pleasure of meeting. Um, Jim Neighbors, um, for those who don't know, aka Bill Pyle. Um, and I remember as a as a young boy growing up in, in Cherry Point, I used to sprint home every day to catch Gilmer Pyle USMC on TV, you know. And he uh Jim played the theater every year. We had him as an artist that played every year. 
and uh, he befriended me, and we we became fantastic friends. And in 1999, um, he said, "You know, I haven't recorded a record in some amount of time, and what's your passion?" I said, "Well, I'd love to produce albums. That's kind of always been a passion of mine." And he says, "Well, great. I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna do the first one in 30 years, and you're going to produce it." And bingo, away I came back to Nashville. So he was largely responsible for bringing me back to Nashville, and we. We did a, a a double gospel record on him uh, that was on TV for a while that, that did very well for him. And we remained fantastic friends right up to his passing a few years ago. Yeah. So he had a real crooner's voice. I mean, it wasn't. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah. he, you know, he's a uh, an amazing singer for the type of singing that he does. And right. a lot of people don't realize he was known for his TV and his acting, but he was the number one selling artist in the late 60s and he out on on Columbia Records. He was out selling Barbra Streisand at one point. Really? Believe it or not, yes. Yeah, so oh, is uh, quite the singer and quite the quite the human being too. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. So you moved into what uh, what we have now, which is Gateway. And why don't mm-hmm. you describe a little bit about what Gateway does? Fantastic. Yeah. Gateway Studios and Production Services is a um, there's two there's two parts to the company. We have a 360 production services company, which and the definition of 360 meaning we provide all disciplines to people. We have sound equipment, we have lighting, we have video, we have rigging, and we have fabrication. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the the concept of being quote unquote 360 allows us to bid on and we we largely store the the uh, serve excuse me. The touring market, but also the corporate market, the festival market, you know, just about any corporates and you know, just about anything that needs it, as you well know it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was that was uh, that's up and running. That's we started that from from scratch. One of my partners, uh, Trey Kerr, who's the CEO of this, had a company called Two Hundred One Productions, which was uh, he was the first person to really do four K HDR video. He had a, a camera fly package and has worked for the band Fish for many, many years. So whenever during the pandemic, where this is kind of born out of, when everyone was sitting around going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Uh, Trey and Jesse Sandler and myself and Andy Gerber and a few others had an idea to expand 201 Productions into a much larger entity, uh, into a 360 company. And during the pandemic, we got together, you know, with our with our owner and uh, was very gracious, so we started that company from the ground up, and has been very, you know, we've been very blessed to have some fantastic accounts and doing some really good things in our first two years of, of business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of gateway production services. Now, in comes the studio concept of this, which is, um, it's kind of a, I'd say it's it, it's initial. It, what it was built for was to do. Touring production rehearsal, which is a very, very up-and-coming large industry, as we will, as we all know. But as we started designing this and getting into it, it became not just rehearsal studios, but it is a fantastic place for live streaming, for any corporate event that you would want to do, trade show events. I mean, it's a it's a 32-acre complex mm-hmm. that houses. Five will will house. They're under construction currently. We're looking to be uh, hopefully up. What they tell us in probably late June of 2024. So 
the what the complex consists of are five studios, which we can get into details of those, a full production support space, an office building, and then a hotel coming online in 2025. Mm. So it's a uh, it's a very, very large complex, if you will. Right. So you're looking for bands that are ready to tour, that want to rehearse? That is that is and, a large part of it. Yeah, absolutely. As as you well know, the, the touring industry has become much larger. Even pre-COVID, it was large, and we took a little break for that. But now it's even larger because the 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 model of how artists used to record and make their money has now flipped in that in our days back then you would, an album was recorded, the, the album sold and the tour was designed to be in support of the sales of the album. Now the industry, as you both, both well know, has taken a huge flip with the royalties and the record companies all splintering and people going independent that the tour now is the, the revenue generator for the artist, much, much more so than the publishing and the, uh, the record sales. So therefore, right. we've had a pretty good quantum shift in the industry that the touring is now the driver and the record is just there to <laughs> support the tour, if you will. It's a little bit mm -hmm. different than it used to be. So that was one reason that this industry has taken off so, so well. And there's very few people that actually have buildings built right now that are doing this. So we kind of took the concept and supersized it, if you will, with the size of the facility. We'll be the largest facility of our type in North America, quite possibly the world, whenever this is completed. Mm -hmm. So we were going to, uh, the other David, we're going to speak to someone uh, next week, I believe, who has a facility similar to this in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Rock Lettuce. Yes, that's yes. exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know anything about it being here in little New Jersey right next to it. But yeah, uh, yeah. so it's, um, is it basically the same concept that they're, they look like they're going to have a hotel as well as um, rehearsal space? With that is correct. Yes. Rehearsal space. Yeah, Sim very similar in context. Ours are just uh, a little larger in size and some of the amenities that we're offering in-house in are a little bit larger, but they kind of started the concept and, and did a fantastic job with it. So, you know, obviously there's, they are full most all the time and very, you know, very busy and the, the opportunity to build more and, you know, that seemed to be the thing to do. And mm -hmm. we're, we're feeling very positive and very you know, upbeat about the possibilities of, of how well the facility is going to do because there is a great need for this. It seems like they're, are only are, who else is there? Because there's you. There's we mentioned Rock Lettuce, and then LA. I assume has got to have places. So where else are are bands of a certain level going to practice? Assuming they're not going into mom's old basement. Yeah, that's a very, very, very few, hardly any facilities. Because what happens is, if you can't go into a dedicated facility for your rehearsal, a lot of people will go into a arena for instance, and rent the arena, which is really not very cost prohibitive either by the time you, you, you add everything in and going in, unless you're opening there. But the, the beauty of what we have and these particular facilities allows the artist to come in unencumbered, undisturbed, privately, do what they need to do. And the facilities that we've built have every amenity and every single thing they need to put their entire show up without compromise. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we location is, is fantastic too. You know, that's another thing. People are why St. Louis? Well, there's two things: that location, location, location. Uh, we're actually about as centrally located in the United States as you possibly can, and inside of a you know a normal ten and a half hour CDL drive, you can hit seventy five or eighty percent of all the major metropolitans. Mm-hmm. And also, there's a lot to do. As the uh, Chesterfield is where we're building this currently. We're very close to airports. We have a private airport less than two minutes away from the facilities that are being built. Lots of hotels, lots of amenities, lots of things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to hear about like the, um, I'll make an example, the Rolling Stones used to rent an airplane hangar. Correct. And rehearse and set up so they could do their production set up. And then uh, also there were bands I used to know used to go up to, we're on the East Coast here. Mm-hmm. go up to Glens Falls, New, New York. There's a little um, theater up there, and they'd rent that for a week or two before they would open up. And uh, many times tours would open up there because it was a very a tertiary market where they could make a million mistakes and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So you guys, I, I, I assume you're going to have um, all the video and so on so they can be totally engrossed in what they want to accomplish 100 percent. and and the way these studios are designed studio 80 studio 75 studio 65 studio 50 studio 40 and the space is built studio 80 is our largest which is the size of an nfl football field Mm -hmm. with an 80 foot grid that has a 2 million pound rigging capacity in it Mm -hmm. and all the power in the room that's needed so what that means is you can actually put a stadium show in its entirety up, fully rig it, fully rehearse it, fully program it. And there's not many places that a stadium act of that size can actually go in and not have to compromise by turning it sideways, for instance, or mm-hmm. capabilities of not being able to put the whole show. In. Let me let me ask you this question, Dave, because a lot of what goes in when we're talking about the production of like a big stadium show, for example, mm-hmm. we hear stories of at the beginning of the tour, it takes the crew 24 hours to put the whole everything together by the last stop in the tour. They've got it down to four hours, you know, so, you know, things like that. Is that one thing it, we're, 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 I guess the listeners are thinking about the bands practicing, but this is also a way for the crews to practice, correct. And, and put everything together and learn what works, what doesn't, what fit, what fix, what needs to be fixed, all that kind of stuff. That's right, David. And, and this is focused on, an average, you know, a large tour, a stadium tour, you know, like a, a Kenny Chesney type of act, for instance, they'll go into a rehearsal facility for sometimes four to six weeks to get everything up, everything completely programmed, completely all the video screens, all the audio to get it just right. And then generally the, the talent or the act will come in for the last one to two weeks, depending on how much one said act needs musical rehearsing and, and tuning of the PA, et cetera. But the biggest thing here is to make sure that that first show goes out damn near perfect. And the uh, the rooms we have allow them to put everything up and rehearse it. And also on stadium-sized tours, your, your good production manager will rehearse the taking up and, and putting, you know, putting up and taking down a number of times how it has time to fit in the trucks. There's so many logistical things that it just doesn't magically appear, you know, how, 
how your truck packs go, how, you know, how fast things are fabricated, if things are fabricated to go into custom carts to make the up and the down go much more efficient from day to day. So it, there's a lot of aspects. It's not just, you know, rehearsing the band and thus, you know, that's why facilities like this are, are needed these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's you know, money well spent and artists now, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the tour is such a, the production of the tour is such a large part of who they are and what they do now. Having that level of excellence and perfection coming out of rehearsal, because, you know, as we all know, what people are charging for tickets these days and the, the consumer is much more educated now through production than they were even 10 years ago. They, they have an insatiable appetite to see the fantastic big screens and to hear good sound, you know, and, and have a lighting show. Like I said, they're very, the consumer is very sophisticated now and, and is very critical of a good show. Mm -hmm. Imagine going back to 1964 when the Beatles played Shea Stadium on, on these, like, yeah. I know they had were like these Fender amps. And well, how they had these columns too. They had the. Masters. All yeah. along the, all along the uh, base, you know, lines. And how awful that must have sounded, if oh. you could even hear. It but couldn't who hear. Cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who cares, <laughs> right. right. So yeah. what do you, um, have you, you heard about the sphere and uh, James Dolan's thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know yeah. a friend of mine went the opening night, and he says it was just... Uh, didn't you can't describe it, but it's five billion dollars. I understand. Yeah, that should uh, that should pay for itself in a year or two. No, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I actually I talked to a few friends of mine that were in attendance as well, and it was just it's indescribable what they've done in there, and it's almost to the point of too much. Could you you know could you have almost the same experience without a live band in there? You know, right. I mean, it's and it's, the scale of it is amazing. I mean, it's you know, three sixty. But then you look down and you can see, you know, from the pictures you can see Bono, who's about this big, you know, or yeah. Now you go, oh Jesus, look at that thing! Yeah. It's unbelievable. So, do you think something like this is going to uh, revolutionize production? I think well, revolutionize. That's that's a great word. The way that building is configured, to the best of my knowledge, from what little bit I, I, I know about it, I'm far from an expert on the sphere, but you don't bring in much production there. Uh, yeah. you, you're not bringing in a huge light show. You're not bringing, you know, the, the elements that the artist brings forth are pretty minimal to the eye. It's all about the, how do you program and use your content to make that immersive experience unique and it's mm -hmm. it's not easy when something is that behemoth you know there is a lot of you know i'm sure there were a, a year plus work just from the u2 camp the creative team of how do we pull this off and how do we make this appear to be seamless yeah so it's, i would sing like say one of your acts let's say um fish got the idea to go in mm -hmm. so your production uh team would have to be enormous and oh, uh, for all the technology if you're assuming that they're going to win with just their guitars and amps 
and the rest is going to be sort of there for them. Mm -hmm. And a fish, for example, uh, it, would it be a, would they be an amazing act? And they're most likely because they're you know, of you know the vibe that they put off, and they're yeah. yeah, they're like they're a very visually driven band, but visually driven through you know the, the masterful work of Chris Carota, their their designer and LD, and the programming with you know guys like GIF. But they don't have video screens. Historically, they have not been a video screen band. Mm. That's mm. a large part of what what Gateway does. Is we have a a full 53 foot TV truck. I mean, shooting in 4K HDR with 16 cameras just for the stream. Mm. So think about you know it, it would be it would be challenging, but I'm sure you know if if that were ever to come to fruition, it would be pretty amazing to see them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the immersive experience, you know, everyone is, has been, a, you know, dabbling in the immersive audio world here for the last five years, and, and which involves putting up several columns of speakers, you know, around and being able to spatially move things to the listener's position. But it's not really cost effective to do that in a touring world, to be touring with 25, you know, stripes of PA in a 360 world. And how do you change that from day to day in, in different environments. I, I think it's going to get there eventually and hopefully become a little more cost effective. But the sphere, what they've done in there is is literally a one of a kind thing with the hollow plot system that they put in there. I haven't experienced it, but people that I know that were there said it was just incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a handful of questions. And one uh, one thing that, that we start with is the um the number 360 has been thrown around a couple ways and we've meant it two different ways both of which are different from the other 360 that a lot of people think about which is the 360 deal that artists get from labels in which a label may earn a portion of every revenue stream for the artist mm -hmm. but uh but Dave when you were talking about the services that your company offers you mentioned a 360 sort of suite of of services and and then Correct. You specifically mentioned, and let me see if I have my rigging, fabrication, lighting, and video. Was there another one? And audio as well. And audio. Okay. So, and then Marconi, you were mentioning 360, and that was more the visual aspect, correct? This literally, you can look circular everywhere, and no matter what, you're seeing part of the show. Yeah. Mar Marconi agrees. Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah. so David, back to you with. The I, I want to talk about uh, a couple things specifically in terms of your suite of services. Rigging. We've thrown around the word rigging quite a bit. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who have no idea what we're talking about when we're talking about rigging. So can you sort of explain from nuts to bolts what is rigging and how what is the difference between a, a stadium show with rigging and then where how low does that go in terms of uh clubs or anything like that? Yeah, great, great question, David. Um, rigging, think of, I guess, to visually for your listeners, to think of the show that you see, it's floating in 3D space. It's, it's you're at the thing and it just all happens to be magically up in all these wonderful positions. Um, how is it floating in free space? Well, it's, um, that's where rigging comes in. And to make kind of a primer, essentially rigging is, it can mean many things, but in its most basic forms, rigging is essentially how you spend your show in a different environment every day. 
So you have, if you go into an arena, you'll see large, if there's not a concert, if you go to a sporting event, all the steel that you see up ahead, the girders and the beams and all that sort of thing that's, that's up there. Rigging is the attachment essentially of a motor flipped upside down that actually hoists the show up. And a motor is not the appropriate word. You know, your, your tours now are in the 100 and 200 points per show. So what a rigger does is says, here's my box. If you think of your show as a box or a rectangle, how do I take that rectangle that does not change from day to day in theory? The design is for it to stay intact as this rectangle. Now, how do I lift all the different elements of the things that are encompassed inside of my rectangle and safely, safely is the key word here, engineer how much it weighs versus where that motor has to sit to lift a truck or a speaker or a video screen. So obviously in a, in a perfect world, we'd love the fact that every beam was exactly underneath where every point had to be, a point being a motor. And what the riggers do is calculate, okay, if it has to be exactly in the middle of this truss and there's nothing above you, most of the time there isn't, you do a thing what's called a bridle, much like a horse bridle. You take that one point and the, the rigger that you have, usually you carry with you, estimates and figures out how far you have to put another piece of steel off the motor in this direction versus the other direction to allow your point to be at zero. And, and weight, how you distribute weight into these arenas or stadiums is extremely critical because these new shows are very, very heavy. I mean, these are, it's, it's the, rigging is a very, it's the most key component of the start of the day. There's no doubt about that. So there's a lot of engineering involved in it and a lot of math. So mm -hmm. those at home that are young, don't skip your, your math or your Pythagorean theories. Cause one day, if you ever want to be a rigger by God, it'll be, it'll be good information. For you to know. So, so that was my next question is, Going back to, let's say, the 80s or the maybe, when were the first stadium shows? Was it, are we talking about the 70s, probably? 70s, I would say. Yeah. But very little was flown mm -hmm. back right. that day. Exactly. It, was, it was ground supported. Yes. There is no, like a stadium, there's no grid over top of you in an open air stadium. So modern day stadium touring, if you will, we bring in a structure and support structures. In essence, stadium shows are still ground supported, but the structures that they are placed on and under are so sophisticated and so customizable now. Essentially, the stage is both a visual element, but it's also an amazing feat of structural engineering that it can take this amount of weight and be put in and taken out in a stadium, if that mm -hmm. makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. So, are these architects you're working with? I mean, you, I know you're mentioning engineering. Uh, what type of person is doing this? How do I, if I'm listening, I'm like, wow, rigging, that sounds kind of interesting. How does somebody get into rigging? Do they just start on a crew and eventually work their way up? Or no, you need to go to college and you, you need to get a master's degree in engineering or something. Is it all yeah. those things? There, well, all of those things, because there's different facets of rigging. You have an uprigger, which is the gentleman who, shucks up to the steel and wraps his leg around the beam and actually makes the connection point from the motor to the steel beam at 80 to 100 feet in the air. There is a downrigger, 
which is called, which is the person on the floor who's responsible for making up the steel components that make the bridle, as we had referred to, work properly when it goes up into the air. So if you can imagine yourself with your legs around the beam at 100 feet in the air, and the guy who's responsible for making the steel doesn't make it right, with it, and you're pulling the weight of the motor and the chain, and he did not put the right piece of steel in, now you've got to lift, take that back <laughs> down, remake it, lift it back up again. That's usually why riggers yelp so much. So the other side of, of rigging to the structural or the engineering side of things is knowing how to do weight calculations. And whenever you take, for instance, and this gets into physics and, and structural engineering as much as it is anything, if you take a, if you think a motor chain, for instance, is running directly up and down, okay, and you make that connection point right there, pull down on it, that's a certain load, okay? That's a fixed load, as we refer to it. Now, when you have to attach that same motor to two different points in order to put it where you want, that's a different load because now you're pulling at an angle left or right to make that single connection point. So that changes the factor of how much load is being pulled and at what angle, and it's side loading. So you have to be very cognizant to what that means when you're attaching multiple things to one particular beam, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then and then you have to be able to calculate on the engineering side of things. Whenever you take this large truss system and you bump those motors, clock, clock, and it comes up, there's a live load and a dynamic load. So when you raise that up and stop it, there's a shock load on the building. So there's, it's not as simple as just wrapping something up to a steel beam. There is a extreme amount of engineering and the guys that are the head riggers on these tours, these are all considerations that they're responsible for. And yeah. that you use them on are engineered heavily as well mm -hmm. to make sure that everyone's safe. You know, that's safety, 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 safety. Yeah. That was my next question. There's a video that people can see about the, the band Journey on their 1984 tour for this album Frontiers called Frontiers of Beyond. Beyond. I was, right. I was, I'll just say I was very, I, I had the, uh, I know a lot of those guys in that documentary very, very well, and they're very close friends of mine, so continue that. Well, that's really interesting, because um, I've had classes at William Patterson actually watch that video and, and talk about the different things that they see, but if you watch that, so it's from 84, which is, that, what is that, 39 years ago, and mm -hmm. In terms of safety, you see these guys just climbing up and they aren't tied to anything. They're just climbing up as high as they can go and just walking around and balancing. And it's so different from today. I would assume that the safe, there's so many more regulations and so much more insurance uh, to deal with that they have to be even more safe. Can you talk about that a bit? Thank God there is. Uh, I remember when I had the sound company, You there was a day when you would go rig your own points. <laughs> before it was and safety was uh safety was was brevity at that point they were <laughs> they were not the same but there have been obviously with osha and the entertainment business becoming you know as large as it has there are regulations there are what are things that are called fall arresters now and there are lifelines up on these beams that when the rigger gets up he is clipped in he's wearing a harness now he's clipped into a life 
a lifeline, if you will, a life safety line. So God forbid something was to happen, he's only going to fall five or six feet or the length of the lanyard on his harness. Mm -hmm. uh, and in engineering and in stages, there are fall arresters when people are going up a spot tower now, things that you hook on as you're climbing the truss. So God forbid you let go or something happens, the, the, the arrester actually grabs you and kind of bounces you a little bit, not a free fall. So there have been uh, through elect electricity and I mean, there's so many things that we teach all of our employees and a lot of other companies have really gotten onto the educational side of safety. You know, rigging is one, electricity is another, that there are massive amounts of electricity. I mean, a stadium show is carrying as much power that will light, you know, five or 10 neighborhoods in a residential area. And that's all temporary and it goes in and out every day. So there are so many things regarding safety that I'm very, very happy to see the, the advances and the developments in our industry in the last even 15 to 20 years and the recognition of that. It's, you know, makes everyone safer. So, uh, for instance, um, let's say the biggest tour, Taylor Swift's tour. She's bringing generators. Everything. As, as a, right. She's bringing in generators that plug into the electricity in the um, stadiums. Well, we generate, that's what, um, portable power, if you will. And most right. all of the stadium shows, uh, and the ones I've been doing for years as well, because football stadiums and baseball stadiums are not equipped to have enough power to generate because these shows are have massive right. amounts of power. Yeah. So you bring in a generation station, essentially, and then you run that out. Through, you bring your own transformers, everything. So the power is completely generated. And that way you have enough. And B, if something happens to the stadium power, the grid, et cetera, you know, harken back to the Super Bowl in Louisville. In New Orleans years ago, when there was a quote unquote grid problem and the show stops, you know. Yeah. But, and especially because a lot of these large shows are now streaming, and any events like this that are live, you do not want to compromise or have the ability to lose power and lose any element of your show these days. Mm -hmm. And it's also, a, you know, an insurance for the ticket taker and the promoter as well, because if the power goes out in the building and you have 80,000 tickets sold to an event, we could still do the show. Yeah. It's the question of egress and life safety for the, the arena at that point, the, the levity and the responsibility doesn't go to the band or the promoter. So, so I assume these generators are diesel powered. 100%. Uh -huh. yeah. How big are the generators? There's a, usually you, there are two, they're semis. They're, they're the size of flatbed semis. Essentially, they are flatbed semis with gigantic uh, diesel-powered generating stations on them, and that makes them portable. Because I, I heard a podcast with an um, interview with, I think his name is Paul Barry, who, um, an, another guy who has done a lot of the things that you do, I, I believe, if I have his name right, he did like the whole YouTube. Jake Barry, my chance? What, what? Jake Barry. Jake. Oh, Jake. God. Yeah. Who's all, like all, all hail Jake, yeah. Jake Beard is a legend in this business. Okay, yeah, so he's the man, right? And so yeah. um, he was talking about doing, I think it was a U two show in Barcelona, and they had mm -hmm. the portable generators outside the stadium, but it was in sort of a neighborhood stadium, and all the neighbors were upset at all the sound, not that the band was making, but that the generators were making. Yeah, yep. So I, I, you don't think yeah. about 
the portable power that that is being that's I mean if that's two semis right there how on the typical let's say a superstar tour a Taylor Swift tour how many trucks are going out I guess 18 wheelers to for all that stuff including the the generators if you if you count generation staging Mm -hmm. uh, all the gear, everything that comes in, the flooring, the barricade, the da 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 da, da all that stuff. It's not uncommon for that truck count to be 80, 80 to a hundred trucks. Mm -hmm. All stuff done. Wow. And right. is that is that something you guys are doing, or that's no, that's the, on the tour manager and the production of uh, the uh, tour side is doing that. Yeah, and we, uh, yeah we do not do tram. We we have a few of our own trucks, but generally on a tour of that size. The production manager contracts with a trucking company, you know, a, and and they're specialized carriers. They're not people that are, you know, hauling peroxide or stock. These are very specialized trucks that have, you know, specialized things inside of them to manage the load and be able to strap the load of all this gear to where it, it's very efficient. And when you think about it, when you have 60 trucks running around, just pick the number 60 just the coordination of a professional company to make sure that those trucks have to come in and go out in a very specific order in order for your show to go up and down on time. And you usually average 15 to 20 minutes per truck. And that's about all the time you've got to unload it and or load it on a stadium show or a, a show of the size of somebody like that Jake takes out. So that's the need for a specialized company that really does that. It's, it's, it's quite a dance in a ballet to watch just the truck movement on a show of that size. And mm -hmm. that's what makes people like Jake Berry's and, you know, Jesse Sandler's and people like that, Opie of the world, so good at their craft. Yeah. So when, so when we talk about Gateway Studios, your, your company, and let's say it's the uh, practicing the production side on the stadium level, mm -hmm. that would potentially include uh having for if you're talking about a six week six weeks of practice it's mm -hmm. that also includes getting the trucks in and out practicing that and practicing loading and unloading or no actually not because what happens is whenever you prep a tour in the shop if you were like gateway for instance we have you know what all the gear is and it's all prepped in the shop ready to go for that first day of rehearsal and you draw out on, which we do, which most companies do, you, you draw out a 53-foot truck on the floor. Actually, we have them painted out on our floors. And then you actually do your truck packs. Now you can do them on AutoCAD as well, because most everything we've got is, is, is in CAD now. So you can actually Tetris gear, digitally do a truck pack. But we still, you line the gear up inside the parameters of where that truck is. So you know it's going to fit, because the worst thing you can do is, get ready to load a show out and the, the, the production manager said seven trucks and you got, well, I've got 8.2 worth of on the floor here, you know, missed it by that much. And with the cost of trucking these days in the entertainment industry, those misses are extremely costly. So obviously you try and circumvent them and avoid those type of things at all costs. Yeah. So the production section of a rider would be a hundred pages, 200 pages. Depends, uh, you know, it, it, um, it, Stephen, it really depends on, on the, the size of the tour. It could be from 10 to, I've seen them up to two or 300 pages. Yeah, I mean, like, a, you know, a, a, a stadium show, mm -hmm. a Springsteen show or. 
yeah or any of the um and usually the the rider side of that from a technical aspect when you're rolling with a show of that stature and that size it's not as complex really because the tour is bringing everything themselves wow now usually on a stadium size tour like that the the more rider specific things are how many rooms are required because you've yeah. got catering, you've got cooking, you've got artists, support yeah. act, production, management, label, yeah. blah, 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 VIP. Yeah. It goes crazy the amount of rooms that are required to pull off a, right. a tour of that size. Right. Okay. Uh, another question, and that is, let's say we're doing a an arena show. We're doing Madison Square Garden, mm -hmm. which is, a, I understand, a pain in the neck because the stage is a f one flight up from ground it's, it's level. More than a, it's more than a flight. I don't know how many times if you've ever walked that famous ramp, it's more than a flight. I can tell you that, brother. <laughs> and uh, we run into unions. Correct. And working with unions. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there's like, for instance, you know, I've played shows where I'm a trumpet player too, where I got up from the stage and uh, my chair and I walked up and I got another music stand and five guys came over me almost killed me because i did something the union guy was supposed to do and so on yep. so how does that work out in terms of doing a madison square garden show and you're yep. bringing these people and of course you want to bring your own rigor i would assume in and so on and dealing with with all the union regulations yeah, well, that's 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 a great question. What what goes into that? And you have union and you have non-union houses. I mean, obviously, your production manager does the best job in his advance ahead of saying, "This is how many bodies I need to put my show up in this amount of time." And union labor, they all have their play. And I'm I'm a I'm a fan of both, to be perfectly honest with you. Because ninety percent of the time, union labor is very highly skilled that is all they do versus a labor company where you'll have people filling a call that the guy you know may work at the at the record store on monday through thursday and he becomes a, a stage hand or an audio hand on the weekends yeah um, and i've found that the, you know they're the, everyone is very good the union hands are very highly skilled and they know how to do it and they work almost exclusively in those particular buildings and knowing the nuances of how I can do this, how I can do that, or I've got this interesting gag, you know, that I need to pull off. How do you, how do you best suggest is I think how I would like to rig it. We go back to rigging and the house rigger goes, well, guess what? It's not going to work because the, you know, the, the Knicks have got this thing hung up in there that flies down, a, you know, on first quarter and you can't rig around that. Mm -hmm. But the whole labor thing, which has been a very, timely topic too. So post COVID, we lost so many people in our industry that just didn't come back. And the education now of the people that we're trying to bring up, because a lot of the old pros, the old guards just simply retired. And a lot of the people that were coming to be underneath the old pros pivoted. So that leaves you with this younger generation of people that it's not for lack of eagerness and wanting to do it, it's just not having that information and not having that education. And that's, I think that's, you know, a little soapbox there, but I mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that our industry 
faces right now is growing our own and bringing these people up and educating them because there's a lot of things that you can teach. And as you well know, you know, Stephen, there's a lot of things that you can't teach that you just have to kind of learn by doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I fully answered your question there. I went on a little bit of a tangent. but yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's really not a question that you can answer just to saying that um, definitely in the rider, there is a number of locals that are going to be needed or suggested and whatever. And then that uh, goes with what the house is. Is it a union house or is it not a union house, et cetera? Yeah, you still need the bodies. There's no question. And nowadays on large calls, it's not uncommon for that call not to be able to be filled. And obviously, if you're a calculated, fine-running machine and you need, I'm paraphrasing, you need 50 people and 38 show up, Hmm. Now we have to pivot, which usually means the touring crew has to step in and step it up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. it's the domino effect in a in a day in the life of touring, which I know you both are very familiar with. If the riggers are late or you don't have enough, nothing happens unless until you're ready to lift. It's it's a domino effect on the in and the out as well. Yeah, and of course the the overall. Uh, perception is the band looks bad. Well, that's the you know, that's that that's our goal is for them to no one to know you know the best the best show in the world the best technical expertise goes unnoticed because yeah. if something doesn't like sound the best sound in the world it's appreciated but it goes unnoticed but boy if you have a an arena show or a stadium show to where the front of house engineer is not having a good day either personally or something that's technical. 80,000 people walk out and go, man, they, they weren't that good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was at Springsteen's show uh, September 1st at the uh, Meadowlands. And mm-hmm. the second night, sound was awful. And I had a, uh, a former student that was a sound engineer who happened to be spectator that night. And he says he c- couldn't imagine why it would be that bad. But he was in a different part of the arena, a uh, uh, stadium too. And it sucked just as bad for him, too. Yeah. It was surprising that uh, with Springsteen, that it would be that that bad. And then I saw the Eagles about three weeks later indoors at Bruce Center, and it was beyond excellent, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the whole sound. Yeah. I'm actually I'm here in a couple of days. I'm, I'm excited. One, yeah. of the, one of the members of the band, uh, Vince Gill, I worked with for a number of years, is a good friend. I'm really excited to see ah. that. Yeah, he did a nice job. Well, you know who did a nice job, Dr. Esteban? David Haskell did a nice job yeah, on our interview. Right now. Because yeah, I mean, I could, like I said, we could, and I, I appreciate the opportunity, you know, to, to join the podcast, and hopefully we can do it again and get a little more in-depth on the studios whenever they get up and running and, yeah. and invite you guys out to see it. It's it's very exciting and it's new industry that we're we're bringing to the state of Missouri and you know it's just it's it's been really fun the, you know the legislation everything that's involved in getting that up and going is uh it's quite a feat it's not it's not for the faint of heart if you will no, it's, it's fascinating stuff and we we appreciate you spending this time with us because this was actually I think went in a different direction than I expected but it was excellent so I'm very happy with this so thank you and interesting too is that we didn't have any uh styrofoam coffee cup stories about this guy and that guy we were down to business the whole 60 minutes here 
Yeah, well, as you well know, you know, <laughs> Stephen, those of us that have been, that's a coffee talk as we refer to it. That could go on. That could be a whole nother podcast. And I think there's yes. several of them that are just <laughs> devoted to just that. Yeah. Stories as we refer to. Well, at the end of our story and at the end of every podcast, David, we say one word. And you, you mentioned before we went on that you listened to a couple of these. Do you know what we say at the end of every podcast interview? I have not. I did not get to the end. I, I have to be honest. I listened to, to the meat of it. Yes. It shows how boring we get. And it, basically, at the end of every show, we don't say hi. We say, adios. Adios. David, join me. Adios. Adios. Wanna be your lover in every sexy kind of way Commit to this addiction and spend the day Couldn't if I wanted Turn around and walk away Sick of this addiction, hear me say uh -huh. alright, oh yeah 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 Wanna be your lover In every sexy kind of